Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 56, verse 1, through chapter 57. Isaiah 56 and 57 this morning. Be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you pray for. That is an odd word from a pastor at church on Sunday morning. But these are true words that we all must take to heart. How often do we pray that God would move a metaphorical or perhaps a literal mountain that is in our way in an area of life in which we feel stuck? How often do we pray that God would give traction to our souls when we feel listless, stuck in neutral, spinning our tires, and when it comes to matters of life and faith? How regularly do we pray that God would do some great spiritual work in our church, and if He be so kind, even in the midst of our whole community? These are, of course, great things to pray. In fact, even necessary things to pray. But how often does God lovingly, yet clearly, answer our prayers, not in the way that we would imagine or ask or design, but in the way that He knows that we need? To be clear, as we enter Isaiah 56 and 57, we don't seem to find a people for whom prayer was high on the list of priorities. But we find our God, who was steadfast in His work of reviving His people from their spiritual slumber. And this is a needed word for all of us who can be lulled to sleep, perhaps amidst the hurry of life and the absence of great crises in our own lives. Perhaps at times you don't feel yourself in great need, in danger. Perhaps the best prayers you offer are quite feeble, quite heartless, because you recognize you, if you were really to penetrate deep down, you don't know what all you have to pray for. And yet God's Word shows us that is where, when in fact, when we don't feel like we have much danger before us, that is when we are most in danger. What I hope to share with you, show you from Isaiah 56 and 57, is that we must forsake a presumptive, spiritually self-deceived mindset and know that God dwells with the contrite and lowly who trust Him. Let me say that again. We must forsake a presumptive, spiritually self-deceived mindset that we are all prone to. And we must know that God dwells with the contrite and lowly who trust only in Him. As we make our way through these two chapters, we're going to see this through three acts. Three parts. We'll see a promise, a problem, and a prescription. A promise, a problem, and a prescription. As we enter these last 11 chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 56 to 66, we now segue to a new section of the prophecy of Isaiah. 
that mainly helps us to answer the question, how do we wait well on our crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ? Isaiah 40 to 55 incredibly uh, features incredible, wonderful, sweeping promises regarding the work of the servant of the Lord, who's revealed to be Jesus Christ, culminating in his death on the cross for our sins in both your place and in my place. But now, after these great promises, the people of Judah find themselves in a place where they have great promises to look back upon, and in the wonder of this word of Christ's cross that they've heard, but now they know of a coming future reign of Christ as well that they can maybe perhaps faintly see out over the horizon if they squint their eyes just right. So the question before them and before us, with cross behind us and the kingdom of Christ before us, is how will we live in the meantime? Simply stated, Isaiah 56, 1 and 2 answers this question for the next 11 chapters. Look at it. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. In these first eight verses of Isaiah 56, we're going to see three different references to those who keep the Sabbath as that being an admirable trait of their faith, an admirable part of their walk of obedience to Christ. But what exactly does it mean to keep the Sabbath? Does this mean to have little to no activity one day a week? Perhaps Old Testament laws about strict Sabbath observance come to your mind. Or maybe you remember stories of Jesus correcting Pharisees and scribes over their hyper-focus on Sabbath observance. And so we look at this and say, what does this mean that we do? I think the key in seeing the harmony of keeping justice and doing righteousness, as we saw exhorted in verses 1 and 2, and we'll see going forward, is this. If you recall, the Sabbath was a celebration of God's perfect creation. God rested because His creating work on the first six days of creation was done. And it is a reminder of God's perfect reign over not only His creation, but His perfect reign over all that is to come. So the person who keeps the Sabbath is the one who trusts entirely in God through Jesus Christ, and their life is totally surrendered to Him by faith. In fact, we enter into the Sabbath rest of God by coming to Jesus Christ and giving Him our lives and then surrendering them totally to Him, to His reign, to His rule, to His authority over us, all because of both what He has done and what He will do. So as ones who are on this side of the cross and ones who are anticipating the coming of Christ, we as the people of Christ look to Him and we live our lives in obedience to Him and trust in Him, seeking to keep justice and do righteousness. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not the biggest fan of heights, getting high up in the air. I don't have a problem with being 35,000 feet in the air on an airplane. I'm talking more about being 50 feet on the air, up in the air, high atop a ladder or a lift, or 200 feet up in the air on what I might perceive to be a rickety wooden bridge. Perhaps you've imagined 
Moments where you, or maybe you haven't imagined you've really had to do it, where you've had to walk across a narrow, small bridge over high heights. I always imagine like Indiana Jones with like alligators chomping in the waters below, waiting to catch you if one of those old, rotted out wooden boards gives way. Sometimes that's what the Christian life feels like, is it not? This is not due to God's unfaithfulness, it's due to the perils that we walk through. The hardships of trusting God that the faint thing that we see over the horizon is the blessings of His eternal presence and joy, and it's not a tsunami and destruction barreling towards us. The Christian life is one of walking that seemingly, note I said seemingly, we'll get to this later, the seemingly rickety rickety wooden bridge and trusting that it will not give way. I know I use mixed metaphors there, but I trust you get the point. Look at what God says in verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. In verses 3 through 8, the Lord addresses two types of people. He addresses the foreigner and the eunuch. A foreigner from the people of God or from Israel was a non-Israelite, someone from outside of the people of Israel. This outsider might be tempted to believe that he or she is unworthy of the same promises that have been given to the insider, to the Israelite, to the Jew. And a eunuch was someone who was either due to their own practices or the fact that they were consigned to or conscripted to a service, a a life of service to others in which they would have freedoms that would be yanked away. A eunuch is one who is physically altered so they could not procreate. They were one who was perhaps lacking in regards to a future and a place and a people to belong to. So God says in verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. How can he do this? Well, it's the promise of the gospel for all who are his through Christ. Look at verse 4, For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Do you see that? To the eunuch who seemingly has no family, has no heritage in this life, God gives them a name and a life that shall be everlasting. It's not lost on me that this passage, this week we see a reference to eunuchs. Last week we had a reference to women who were barren. Perhaps this is the boat that you are in. Whether through decisions that you have made or in the strange providence of God, you have not or cannot have children. May I speak words of comfort and hope to tell you that God invites you to come to sit at His table, to feast, to live on the goodness and love that He offers And to know that if you come and feast on His grace, that He will give you an everlasting name that is better than sons and daughters even. Read on with me in verse 6-8. through Follow as I read. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain." And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. It is rare for the person who is a visitor to the church who is not quite sure regarding Christianity. Or maybe you are sure and you believe that it's off base and out of touch. And you're you're here for reasons unbeknownst to you. Maybe you're here to satisfy mom on Mother's Day. Didn't have anything better to do. It's rare for this person, whatever reason they are hearing the words of the Bible, whatever reason they're sitting under the preaching of God's Word, it is rare for them to feel at ease or to feel comfortable amongst Christians. We strike most people as a weird bunch. And we are. Perhaps you think we're weird. Perhaps you think we kind of smell funny. We talk or act in an odd manner. We sing loud and off-key. This seems like a secret society of sorts, and you're an outsider from the group who doesn't quite understand the secret that binds all these people together. May I, echoing Isaiah 56, 1-8, may I welcome you to being amongst our church family. May I share with you that God has in fact thrown open wide the doors of His welcoming grace to those who feel as if they don't belong. In fact, that's the first step towards becoming a Christian. You're on the road there and you didn't even know it. Realizing that you don't belong. That you don't fit in. In fact, none of us do. The only condition for anyone to become a Christian is to recognize, in fact, that they can't meet any conditions to to have earned God's love for them. The only condition to becoming a Christian is to recognize that it's our own sin against God that causes us not to belong and to repent of that sin and to come to Christ. To come to Him and look at Him upon the cross and to say, okay, He died for my sins And to remember His coming reign, that He will reign in perfect justice, in perfect righteousness over all things, over all of His people. And to say, okay, I want to come to this Christ. If you'd like to know more about this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that invites you to come to Him and find life, I'd be honored to speak with you after our service today. I generally greet people at the doors in the lobby downstairs. We can step aside and there'd be no greater honor that I could give that I could have than to try to answer any questions I can for you about what it means to be welcomed into God's grace through Jesus Christ. Now, dear Christian, brother, sister, if you feel as if the journey is perilous, full of strife and despair, full of hot days under the sun and cold nights in the dark, agonies unforeseen, difficulties unexpected, and worse, you feel as if some of this comes about simply because of you. You feel as if on the journey of the Christian life, you're not traveling just with a carry-on, but you've got a lot of baggage that you are having to check with you. Oh, that you would know from Isaiah 56 that the Lord gathers the outcasts to Himself. You would know that the Lord is with you. That that you would not be stuck by anything but great awareness of the fact that you live and hope through Christ. No matter what you live 
and bring to Christ. Honest, humble hope that is aware of our own pitfalls yet clings to Christ. This is a beautiful hope that cannot be destroyed. And Isaiah 56, 1 through 8 stands as a lighthouse welcoming weather-beaten ships into the harbor of Christ's never-ending mercy. Perhaps it's something you would need to go reread tonight before bed, before starting another week. It welcomes weather-beaten ships into the harbor of Christ's never-ending mercy. But what we must understand as we proceed forward is that that harbor of Christ's mercy is infinitely deep for ships that run only on mercy and grace. But it is far too shallow for the ships that are propelled by their own presumptive arrogance. And that's where we get to a problem. We've seen a promise of hope and grace and a future that cannot be squashed. And now we see a problem. The people of Israel, as they hear this, they had heard the prophecy of God's resolve not to leave them into their sin, but to do whatever was necessary to work their redemption. And their response is simply a shrug. A shrug of thanks. Okay. Thanks, God. Well, I guess we'll take that. Can we get that grace to go? I've got a busy day ahead of me. Can you, can you bag that up and I'll take it home with me and maybe have it with dinner? God describes this condition as He invites metaphorical beasts to come and destroy the fields of Judah because her leaders, her people, are asleep at the wheel. Look at verses 9-12. through 12. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They've all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. What God is saying is God sees through hypocrisy. God sees through dishonesty. What we begin to see developed at this point in Isaiah 56 is the truth that no matter one's background or credentials, they are not evaluated on the measuring stick of the world's perceptions, but they are evaluated in accordance with God's standards. The foreigner or the eunuch who is clinging to the grace of God by their fingertips, they are secure. The Israelite who can trace the family line all the way back to Moses and to Abraham and went to good schools and has had great success in this life, but has only lip service for God. And their hypocrisy, they are exposed and the destruction they are bringing upon themselves is evident. Remember, the harbor of Christ's mercy is infinitely deep for ships that run only on mercy and grace of Christ. But it's too shallow for those that are propelled by their own presumptive arrogance. In Isaiah 57 verses 1 and 2, we do see the condition of the righteous that is mentioned. But it's explained in a manner describing their disappearance and death. In a manner that's totally unnoticed amidst all the busyness and commotion of a bustling full of themselves people who have little use for keeping justice and doing righteousness. Verse 1, the righteous man perishes And no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds. 
who walk in their uprightness. It's as if they die and no one cares. God goes on in verses 3 and following and describes the behavior and the heart of the people of Israel as if they are prostituting themselves out, professing their love for God, yet running after all sorts of other gods as they presume that mercy and grace will be there. You know what we have to be careful of, dear church family? When we read a passage like this, we read of eunuchs and foreigners brought near to the throne of grace and the people cast away in their spiritual pride. We need to be very careful not to presume that we are the eunuchs and foreigners who will drink upon an ever-ending supply of grace. That's the whole point. Isaiah is addressing the spiritual pride that we are all so easily given over to. Let me ask you, do you more easily, more readily get worked up over your sins or the sins that you see in others? Do you put boundaries on God about how and where He can and cannot work in your own heart and life? Do you sit down before Jesus Christ, our great physician, and decline His care because you want to seek a second opinion before allowing Him to do that operation that is going to remove that cancerous pride or closely held idol from your heart? Do you profess to worship Him but have little interest in the care and growth of your brothers and sisters in the faith? Do you profess to worship Him, but when you sort through competing priorities and obligations, somehow it seems that gathering with the church to worship always seems to get the short end of the stick? Do you profess to worship Him, but tell yourself, I'll serve Him how I need to serve Him, and He'll understand. As if you make the rules for your life, for your love life, for your decisions big and small, and His responsibility is to get on board. What we'll find if we neglect to draw near to Christ and allow Him full control over us is that we may look up one day and find that we spoke the language of Christianity just well enough to sound like we belonged. But our mouths that sang those songs in worship were disconnected from our hearts that never trusted and hoped in the Christ that we sang about. This is what Jesus warned a bunch of religious leaders in his day, we read back in chapter 56, you might have remembered that line and said, I think I've heard that before, where he says in, in uh, chapter 56, where he says, excuse me, in verse seven, uh, um, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Perhaps we've heard that and thought, OK, it means that we pray for the gospel to go forward to the ends of the earth, which is a very good thing. But what Jesus was addressing in his day when he overturned the tables of money changers in the temple and said that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, he was saying that we should not build walls and distort things in order that we, pro- that we prohibit people who are, are, are outside and who are detached from being able to come in and worship and pray to this God. And the greatest way we build walls is in our self-righteousness. How do you view those whom you disagree with politically? How do you view those from whom you disagree with in regards to health decisions and approaches towards all that we've been through over the last two years? 
Do we meet one another with grace and with mercy and understanding and trying to lift one another up and bring one another to the throne of grace because we recognize that at the table of Christ's mercy, we are all beggars needing bread? Or do we consider ourselves guests of honor? And we should probably remove some of these extra seats at the table before others come in and make dinner uncomfortable. Lord, picking up in chapter 57, verse 11, speaking to the idolatry of His people, says, Whom did you fear? Or whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember Me? Did not lay it to heart? Have I not held My peace even for a long time and you do not fear Me? I will declare Your righteousness and Your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Let me read verse 13 again, because that is powerful. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them all away. Look at the end of verse 13, brothers and sisters. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Isaiah is writing with all that he has within him to try to show us the need to live with the kingdom of Christ in mind. With the all-encompassing glories of that day informing the mundane and the seemingly insignificant of this day. There was a time when I was younger that I wanted to be a pirate. I love the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. There's something interesting about Captain Jack Sparrow, played by Johnny Depp. When it comes to captaining his prized ship, the Black Pearl, he is without peer. But he always seems to find himself in trouble when he gets off the Black Pearl and goes on land. There's always an unpaid bill or obligation a fight or conflict at a tavern or amongst a people or adversary whom he had previously wronged. But when he was on the ship, that was when Captain Jack Sparrow was in his element. At the end of the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, he finally gains recontrol, regains control of the Black Pearl and he takes the helm of the ship and looking out over the waters, he squints and he says, now bring me that horizon. Are we little pirates dilly-dallying around the tavern and the land and picking squabbles and fights and, and, and getting lost in, in the lustly pursuits of, uh, of this world and of this life? Or are we on board sailing on that ship of Christ's grace with eyes nailed down towards the horizon of the coming kingdom of Christ? When we get off the ship and get distracted, we can't see that horizon. But when we are on board, we can't get enough of it. The love of Christ and the presence of His Spirit is what fills our sails as we sit in this moment between Christ's cross by which we have been purchased and as we sail towards His kingdom to which we look for and long for that day. So how do I take refuge in Christ? We've seen a promise. This promise that all who are His, that, that, that they, they will find a life, a family, a hope, a future but a problem of those who shrug it off, who presume upon His grace, but can't be bothered by His mercy at work in them. Well, now we find a prescription in verses 14 to 21. 
Remember I mentioned earlier the Christian life as being like trying to walk across a rickety wooden bridge? Isaiah has revealed to us that it appears to be unreliable and dangerous because simply we are trying to carry way too much across that bridge. God's grace is big enough that there is nothing it cannot atone for, but His love for us is so great that He will not let us try to bring our true treasures into heaven while we profess that He alone is our treasure. Idols do not get smuggled into heaven. And the bridge, the journey to which we try to march towards that day, it will collapse under the weight of our idols. Where I grew up in Arkansas, there's an old historic wooden bridge. And I one time saw a video of a large truck or bus trying to cross the bridge and it was swaying and it looked perilous. Thankfully, the truck made it across, but it was a dangerous journey because somebody somewhere had not read the signs and the truck had far exceeded the maximum weight limits for the bridge. The Christian life doesn't work. The bridge doesn't hold if you try to bring too much stuff with you. As I said, we cannot smuggle our idols into the kingdom of Christ. So what do we do with them? How do we leave them and start to walk across the bridge and know that we will reach the other side? The answer is in verses 14 to 21, but allow verse 15 to be a summation. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Do you see the imagery there of verse 15? God says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly. There's nowhere in the middle ground there for those of us who think that we've got it all figured out. For those of us who store up little bits of grace that we have as dessert with our meal. God dwells with the lowly, with the humble, with those who are contrite and recognize that they don't need little samples of grace, but they need to drink from the fire hydrant of God's grace. Humble yourself. Be honest with God about the idols that we all try to smuggle with us, whatever they are. Confess them, ask for His grace to forsake them, and then you find something beautiful. He will revive your spirit. He will revive your heart. Look at verses 17 to 19. Because of the iniquity of His unjust gain, I was angry. I struck Him. I hid my face and was angry. But He went on backsliding in the way of His own heart. I have seen His ways, but I will heal Him. I will lead Him and restore comfort to Him and His mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, Peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. God promises to revive his people, but he does so on his terms and not ours. You see, in these verses, he does not place a blind eye upon the spiritual adultery and idolatry of his people. He brings comfort as a means of healing, but he does so only for those who have been secured in His grace, via the work of Christ on the cross. So what do we do with cross behind us and and, and kingdom of Christ before us? We humbly empty our bags of our idolatrous attempts to distort the work of God in us. And we acknowledge His right to work within us. Every single one of us will either humbly allow God to make us into what He would have us to be, 
or we will do everything we can to make him what we want him to be. Which one will it be for you? He promises to come to those, to revive those who humble themselves, become contrite and lowly in heart before Him. Be careful what you pray for. This prayer for God to revive hearts. This prayer for God to do a work in your life, in your family, in your church, in your community. It might not be what exactly you wish for, but it will be what exactly we need. And as we see God not necessarily give us what we want, but what we need, it might just be that when He convicts us and starts to awaken us again to the need to be made foreigners and eunuchs yet again, struck anew by the wonder of the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that He stamped on us with our name written in His blood. We never walk away from that cross. But we set our eyes so deeply on that cross of Christ that one day we are going to become so lost in that cross that we are going to look up and we are going to turn around and we are going to see that we have reached that kingdom of Christ. And there before us, will be our crucified and risen Lord welcoming us, having guided us across that bridge only by His strength and only by His grace. Brothers and sisters, let us be careful to forsake a presumptive, spiritually self-deceived mindset Rather, let us come to know that God dwells with the contrite and the lowly who trust in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that You would help us to set our eyes and our hearts, our desires, our everything so much upon Christ crucified for us, for our sins. We would continually be made new, continually be made new, continually be made new. That the way in which we would grow as we anticipate that kingdom of Christ would be by never getting over that crucifixion of Christ and rejoicing in the gospel again and again and again and again as you revive us, not necessarily as we would wish, but as we start to taste those mercies anew from you. We find that the meal of your grace is far greater than the crumbs of our idols. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.